Some uh, years ago now, I was having dinner with a group of people celebrating someone's birthday and there was an elderly gentleman sitting across the table who was known to me who waited patiently for his meal just along with the rest of us. And when his meal arrived, he looked at it and he said to the waitress, who was quite embarrassed, he said, this is not what I ordered. And uh, his wife was saying, you know, it's, it's okay, it's okay. She said, no, 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 that's not what I ordered. I, I want what I ordered. And uh, it was a moment for us sitting at the table of some embarrassment and some shame, I guess, for his wife. But he turned to me at one stage in that conversation. He said, I'm old enough now to be able to say what I think and what I want. And I guess in some ways there's some truth in that, although perhaps there could have been a whole lot more grace in the manner that he did it too. How do you go being assertive, speaking out what you really want? And the question that I really want to think about today as we come back to the book of Acts is, how do we go in terms of being bold when it comes to sharing the gospel? How do we go being bold when it comes to speaking about what Jesus Christ has done in our lives? While assertiveness like that of my friend might border on arrogance, I think probably my experience would suggest that most of us, myself included, wish that we were a little bit more assertive when it came to be able to speak God's truth to people, to friends, to neighbours, in conversations, or whatever it might be. Today, we're continuing in our series from the book of Acts. We're coming back to Acts chapter 4, picking up where Matt left off last week. And uh, it's going to be good for us to continue to dig into this passage today. And I encourage you to have a Bible handy with you. The context of the passage that we're looking at is really quite significant. Because back in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John had performed an amazing miracle. A man who had been, had been lame for many years was healed. And subsequent to this amazing miracle in front of many onlookers, Peter was able to proclaim Jesus as the name, the one who had been put to death but who was raised back to life and by through whose power he was able to do this healing. And Peter proclaimed Jesus strongly in that moment. But gathered in the crowd were uh, the religious leaders, the rulers of Israel, the members of the Jewish ruling council, the people that we know as the Sanhedrin. And at this time, the Sanhedrin was dominated by one of the powerful sects in the, uh, the religion of Judaism. There were different groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. At this time, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, was dominated by the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were people who believed that the Messiah, the Messianic age at least, had already come. It started back in the time of the Maccabees, uh, some time before Jesus. They also didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so they had some real issues with the preaching of Jesus, who uh, are preaching about Jesus, the preaching of the apostles as they preached Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And so as we saw back there in chapter 3 and at the start of chapter 4, they had Peter and John arrested and put them in prison overnight and then interrogated them the next day. And our passage from Acts chapter 4 uh, starts at verse 5 with this interrogation. What I'm going to do today is actually walk through the passage in some chunks and so I encourage you right now 
to follow with me uh, chapter 4 verses 5 through to 7. Let's read that together. The next day the rulers, the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them. By what power or name did you do this? That's a really interesting question and one that uh, raises a whole heap of questions for us because uh, what we see here in the text is that Peter and John had made no, uh, had, had not hidden the purpose of what they were uh, preaching, hadn't um, said anything that hadn't been said publicly. And so uh, we see that uh, something really strange is going on here. The passage that we've just read gives us a marker of time. It tells us that it was the next day. What happened happened the next day after the healing. Uh, the guys had been, Peter and John had been arrested and put in prison and uh, they'd faced an unpleasant night, now stood before this ruling council who were interrogating them. This um, Sanhedrin too is an interesting group. Um, Luke gives us some of the names and two things are really clear as a result of that. The first is that um, this Sanhedrin is dominated by some powerful families. There's a couple of families who are represented in this group and so it's a pretty tight-knit group. The second thing I think which is really interesting and I'd never really taken a lot of notice of this is that this is exactly the same group that had interrogated Jesus. This is the same group who were responsible for asking for the death of Jesus. And Luke wants us to understand this is the same group and in fact more broadly that the opposition that the apostles and the disciples are facing is exactly the same as the opposition that Jesus faced. And as I said a few moments, they asked the same kind of questions that Jesus was asked. They asked the question, by what power or what name did you do this? And if you look back at Luke chapter 20, verse 2, for instance, you'll see there when they were interrogating Jesus before they had him uh, put to death, they asked similar questions. Tell us, they said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And as I said, it's a strange question to ask because the apostles had been ministering quite publicly. They had made no, uh, they hadn't hidden what it was they were saying, they hadn't hidden their actions. But the questions that the Sanhedrin is asking are really interesting questions. They're asking the question, by what power and in whose name? And it tells us that they were focused on two things, uh, power and reputation. And in some senses, they're like uh, many of the religious leaders of their day and, and in some cases religious leaders since then, very invested in power and reputation. And so here's a little of the context of what takes place in this passage. As we move on in verse 8, we continue to read, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called account to, to, uh, called account, sorry, being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and we're being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed.' 
Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, when it came to responding to the Sanhedrin, Peter, of course, immediately thinks back to the events that have just taken place the day before the healing of the man. And so he uses that as the framework for his response. And we know, too, that this man, now fully healed, was standing right in the presence of this interrogation. And Peter appealed to the leaders and through the leaders to the people of Israel to acknowledge the source of healing. And again, Peter used that opportunity to proclaim Jesus as the name through which we might be saved. If you were ever wondering about this question, is there any other way of salvation? Is there any other way of getting to God? Is there any other route, any other religion, any other pathway that we can take to, to, uh, to get to heaven? The answer is clearly explained here in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, for it says in very plain language, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's a great verse and a great reminder to us that Jesus Christ is the only way by which we might be saved. As we go on, verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see, no, see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speak about that which we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who'd been miraculously healed was over 40 years of age. You know, it was at this point that the, uh, the, the gathered Sanhedrin, the rulers of Israel, found themselves on the horns of a dilemma. I don't know if that uh, phrase is familiar with you. It basically means it doesn't matter what they did, they knew they were going to be in trouble if they went this way they were going to be in trouble. If they acknowledged that an amazing miracle had taken place, they had to agree that it happened in the manner that uh, Peter and John were proclaiming. If they went this way and said, no, there hasn't been a miracle, uh, they had to actually do that in the face of the reality that the guy was standing right in front of them. What to do? To deny the miracle would be to try to argue that black was white. To admit it, would be to admit that it was performed in the manner that they were uh, hearing from the apostles. And the fact that they couldn't concede what was obvious in front of them illustrates for us the power of pre-existing belief. And you might want to think about that in the world that we live in and what that means for us today. You know, back in about uh, 1579, Galileo took a scientific theory that had been accepted from the days of Aristotle 
that a heavier object would hit the ground faster than a lighter object if they were both released at the same time. Uh, Galileo's theory said that they should, because of the gravity, they should hit at the same time. So he gathered some of the preeminent scientists of the day and had them grouped together under the leaning tower of pizza. He dropped two weights and they fell and landed simultaneously, even though that happened before their very eyes. Still some of those people wouldn't believe. Despite the evidence before their own eyes, many refused to acknowledge that reality and held fast to a theory that had been proposed 2,000 years before. None of us are exempt from this pre-existing bias and the power of pre-existing bias. So what was the response of the Sanhedrin? Well, they did the best they could think of. They said to the apostles, uh, just get out of here and don't do it again, naughty boys kind of thing. They warned Peter and John not to continue to speak and sent them on their way. As the passage continues in verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Verse 27, indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Now Lord, and listen to this in their prayer, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The, uh, the actions of Peter and John and the apostles, other apostles and the church broadly upon their release are deeply informative for us as we think about what does it mean for us to be bolder in our proclamation, bolder in our witnessing to Christ. What, here's the question, what gave the early church the energy and the impetus and the, and the power to be as bold as they were? I want to think about that question for a few moments. Why was it that these unschooled ordinary men, as they were identified by the Sanhedrin, could speak the message with such power? What do these observations say to us about being bold in our proclamation today? Well, there's four things I'm going to offer to you this morning, today. Uh, you can uh, draw other things out of this passage too, but perhaps four observations we'd make today about this uh, application. And the first is found back in here in verse 19, where in response to this command not to preach, what did Peter and John do? Well, Peter said, judge for yourselves, you guys, whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. You know, this passage um, would provide lots of grist for the mill, so to speak, if we were going to talk about what it means to obey God over secular authorities. The whole civil disobedience question uh, could be anchored in this passage. But that's not kind of what we're talking about here today. Uh, 
What I do want to just take notice of, though, is this point. The apostles knew where they stood in relation to God. They were secure in their relationship to God, and that gave them boldness. They knew that God had the authority, that God was greater than any other, greater than the authorities that they were speaking to, and they were secure in that. It's kind of uh, funny, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a story from years ago when I was hanging around with one of our young people at the church up in Robinvale. This is going back many years before we had children. His name was Josh. Josh and I had been messing around at the church one day and uh, we decided to nick back down to our place, which was about six doors away from the church, really convenient. And rather than walking out the front and around, we just said, let's just hop over the fence. And so Josh, who was young, he was only 13 or so at the time, vaulted up and over the steel fence down on the other side. When he landed on the other side, it just so happened that two of the local thugs were walking up the street from the other direction. And in the, in the manner of Neanderthals, they saw this young guy, you know, he's only a little guy, jump over the fence and they kind of got a bit argy-bargy and said, hey, what are you doing? And uh, for a moment there, I guess Josh panicked, but it was only moments after that that I jumped over the fence at which point the Neanderthals both said, oh, well, well, we're nothing. It's really kind of a, a, a happy memory in a way because it was so funny. We talked about that over the years. You see, on his own, Josh was in all sorts of trouble. They might have caused some grief for him. But when I hopped over the fence, you know, someone as big as me, suddenly it all changed. Josh was secure in that relationship. And so too, these apostles as they proclaimed Christ before the Sanhedrin. That's not an easy place to do it. They did it uh, because they were secure in that relationship. They could speak boldly because they knew where they stood in relation to God. Godly boldness is not just about courage. It starts by knowing the one that we stand with, knowing that God has more power and more authority than any other. If we're secure in that, that changes everything. That's the first element. If we jump to verse 24 to 28, we see the second thing worthy of observation. This is quite deep and, and perhaps worth more exploration than our time allows today. Uh, it, the second one is this. The apostles and more broadly the church understood that the events that were surrounding them at the moment, at their time, could be understood in, an, in a historical and theological manner. And if you understood them from a historical and a theological perspective, they kind of make sense. You see, if you look at verse 24 through to 28, you'll find a strong affirmation of two really important things. On one hand, the sovereignty of God. God is the, uh, the maker of heaven and on earth, the sea and everything in it. And through history, and this is the second thing, there has been opposition to God's purposes and God doing his work. Throughout history, nations have raged and people have plotted in vain. In this passage, we have a quote here from Psalm 2, just a short quote from Psalm 2. It's a fascinating psalm to go and have a look at. Psalm 2 affirms this consistent theme of opposition to God's purposes in the world right through history. And in verse 27, if we jump out beyond Psalm 2, uh, they see the link between 
the persecution of Jesus and what they're experiencing now. It's consistent. This opposition has a common source. And we see uh, Satan identified as part of that common source uh, later on in our next passage that we'll look at next week. Just interesting too, if you go and have a look at Psalm 2, it identifies this common opposition that God uh, has faced to his work of kings and nations who stand against him and, uh, and reject his rule and rebel against him. What is God's response? Well, Psalm 2 tells us he laughs. You don't expect that, do you? God laughs. It's, it's inconceivable that you puny armies and people could stand against this amazing God. Well, it's true to say, I think, that when it comes to uh, opposition to God's work, oppositions to God's people doing God's work, there's nothing new under the sun, but we take heart because God is sovereign over all circumstances and God uses and redeems opposition to his will. He takes the opposition and he turns it just when it looks like they've won and turns the victory in his favour. And this is a theological understanding that the apostles applied to all of their circumstances. They recognised that God was sovereign in heaven and on earth and over everything. They knew that though kings and rulers and nations plotted against God, his purposes were never thwarted. And at a personal level, I found this to be very, very encouraging through life. No matter what you might face, no matter what the circumstances you might face, no matter what goes on around. This psalm is true. Psalm 3, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high, I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. The response of the apostles didn't just stop at their understanding of their circumstances or their relationship with God. They did something really important. They prayed. And in verse 29, we have a really succinct summary of their prayer where they prayed, Now, Lord, consider the threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hands and heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's interesting what they prayed for. It's even more interesting what they didn't pray for. Have a look at what they didn't pray for. You have to do a little bit of reading between the lines here. They didn't ask God to stop the opposition. Did you notice that? When they asked God, they asked him to consider the threats of their opponents, but they didn't say to God, take them away or stop them or prevent them. They just said, God, this is in your hands. It's a reliance on that sovereignty of God thing again. And they asked God to empower their witness, rise up our witness, help us to be better, help us to speak your word with great boldness, is what the text says. My prayers so often go along the lines of, Lord, make my life easier. When in actual fact, God wants us to say, help me walk through that. And finally, the fourth point after the apostles responded by praying, uh, is this one. They were dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit. You have a look at this passage, you'll see the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit is woven through the whole passage. It's uh, mentioned here in verse 8 where Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit 
and speaks before the Sanhedrin. It uh, finishes with a focus on the Holy Spirit as the community of Christians prayed. The place where they were was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word more boldly. You see, godly boldness is not, as I said before, something that we can conjure up for ourselves. It's not something we can learn. Certainly we can become more adept at sharing the gospel with practice. But boldness is actually a divine gift, not a moral virtue to be acquired by repeated exercise. And the Sanhedrin asked that question, what power is it by which you are healing? What power is it by which you did this? But it was power that they couldn't understand. There's two gatherings in this story, the gathering of the church, the gathering of the Sanhedrin. What's the difference between them? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in the first. And it was the Holy Spirit that emboldened the church and gave them courage. And the way the language of this text reads is really significant. It's this uh, Holy Spirit activity is a fresh filling, not a new filling, a fresh filling, which is consistent with how I understand the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Because I believe that when a person becomes a Christian, the Bible teaches us, we receive a baptism by the Holy Spirit. We are washed and cleansed and made new by the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is baptised into Christ by the Holy Spirit. But there are times where we are infused with the Spirit's power. We are filled. And uh, that came as a result of this prayer. That came as a result of the church humbling themselves and desiring to see God at work, whether it comes as a response to circumstance or in response to prayer, which we see uh, there is this filling, this special anointing by the Spirit of God, something that is not reserved only for the super spiritual or even characterised by certain gifts. It's an example from Acts of how this Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, the Spirit of Christ works through believers and that God desires that we might all have available to us. This place that the church gathered in was mightily shaken and they spoke the word of God more boldly. What a great testimony that is. That's something we desire and something that God offers to us as his people. Let me encourage you this week too, as you reflect on these words, to consider what does it mean to walk boldly into the things of God. Let's pray as we conclude this part of our service and ask God to do that. Lord, we would just pray today that you will help us to avoid the um, common mistake of trying to rustle up the courage to be bold and rest in you and learn from what this passage teaches us to be secure in our relationship with you, to understand the events of our world from an historical and theological perspective, to be people of prayer, quick to fall to our knees and to allow your spirit to infuse us and work through us and bless us and bless others. Lord Jesus, we commit ourselves into your hands today. In your name, amen.